Welcome to K2. I just saw Minnie Mouse is here today, which is cool. I'm a pirate. Uh, so I, I guess I didn't know this. Uh, this is the first place I've ever actually uh, celebrated Halloween the day before Halloween. I didn't know you did that here in Utah, but apparently you do. So I dressed today for the occasion. I dressed like a pastor. Button-up shirt, jeans, and dress shoes. That's how we do it at K2. So wanted to play the part. Hey, um, well, we are, uh, again, I'm really excited to be here with you today and sharing uh, about on Orphan Sunday. Uh, those of you who know me uh, know that my wife Susie and I, we have adopted two kids. So this is something that's really near and dear to our heart. And um, also, in addition to that, we, um, I was just in the Philippines for a week with a crew of bunch of you. Minnie was with us in the Philippines in... Um, Preston, I saw Preston here today, uh, but a group of us went to the Philippines and really uh, had a great opportunity to uh, just share with Kids International Ministries and dive into the lives of orphans and feed and just do all kinds of crazy stuff. And so, um, again, this day is really near and dear to my heart, and so I'm really excited and honored to be here with you uh, sharing this. So, uh, what I'd love to do, if you wouldn't mind, I just I'd love to open in a word of prayer. So, would you close your eyes and uh, bow your head and pray with me? Lord, we're, uh, we're grateful that you give us uh, a day like today to uh, remind each and every one of us that you have placed those with no voice and uh, uh, those that uh, don't have the opportunities that many of us have here on this earth and it is our job to take care of them. I pray that as we um, talk today, your words would be what, what is spoken and what's heard. Uh, challenge and motivate each of us to do something and act differently so we're more like you and more in alignment with your will for our life. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, um, if you guys were here for the opening song, In the Ghetto, um, I I actually remember the very first time I heard that song. I heard it in uh, Mrs. Sweet's third grade class in Gallimore Elementary School in Plymouth, Michigan. And uh, (laughs) I don't know why they got a cheer, but... Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> that was a lame Elvis, wasn't it? Uh, anyway, that song, In the Ghetto, is interesting. I started, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a music nut. I love music. And uh, a little information on that song that was really, really intriguing to me. That song was actually written in, in 1969 by Mac Davis, not by Elvis. And Mac Davis, I think he had a show on TV or something like that. But, and he, he wrote music and stuff. But he wrote that song. Uh, based on a child who had uh, no, no father in his life. And he grew up in this impoverished uh, place. And uh, he, couldn't, uh, he, he couldn't overcome his surroundings. And he turns to a life of crime. And in the end, he ends up dying as a result of his life uh, choices. And uh, the song, originally Mac Davis wanted to call the song The Vicious, uh, Vicious Circle. And for some reason, maybe that wasn't as uh, melodic or something to sing. And he ended up calling it In the Ghetto. But again, I remember hearing that in third grade for the very first time. And in, in that classroom, what happened for us, uh, Mrs. Sweet had uh, a little listening station with a record player. And now, you young kids don't know what that is, but for us that are older, it's an actual piece of plastic with grooves in it that would play music. And um, you could bring these in, and if you finished your classwork before the allotted time was done, you could actually go and listen, and there were only two headphones, so you had to kind of get done quick or else that station would get filled up, and so I was always busting through my work uh, to go listen. And on this particular day that I heard that song, um, 
Someone else, and I don't even remember who it was, had brought this 45, which is the small version of uh, this Elvis song in, and he played it. And I listened to it, and listened to it again and again and again and again. And for some reason, that song just got inside my brain. And the line that stuck out to me, because I've only heard it a handful of times since then, the line that stuck out in my, in my head that I, I could went home and it's, it was this, a hungry little boy with a runny nose decides to roam the streets at night in the ghetto. And I was kind of confused so, because, first of all, I didn't know what a ghetto was. I, I just had no idea. So I went home and I asked my mom, you know, what's a ghetto? And she explained, well, you seem like uh, it's where people who maybe they don't have a lot of money um, and they live in sort of the houses are kind of falling apart and it's not a safe part of town and there's a lot of crime and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, okay. And then, she, and then well, why would this kid be roaming the streets at night? <laughs> Doesn't make sense to me. You see, because for me, it was very far from my life experience. I grew up in a family with a mom and a dad and they loved me and they took care of me and they, you know, they were very involved and active in my life. And there's no way I'm going to be running the streets in some unsafe neighborhood at night. It just was very foreign to me. And about that same time, uh, you, some of you may remember Sally Struthers with the World, I think it was World Vision or World Compassion or something like that, uh, where she'd do these commercials shot in Africa for, for people, who needed, um, people who needed food. And they'd show the little African children with the bloated bellies from tapeworm and the flies around their head. Very, very emotional stuff. And for me, um, those two sort of became one in my mind. You see, so the, the ghetto, see there, I knew there was a ghetto, obviously, you guys singing about it. So I knew there was a ghetto, but for me, it was a place that existed somewhere in this far distant land that had very little impact on me and I on it. It just didn't relate to my life. And, and I tell you this uh, because, because of this. Um, I believe that the mentality and the attitude that I held towards orphan children as a third grade boy in Mrs. Sweet's class at Gallimore Elementary, I believe that that attitude is the same that some of us still have. And I want to tell you that also that that attitude is not right. It's wrong. It stands in opposition to God's word. You know, and many of you guys, uh, you may have a similar experience to me where you grew up in a really stable household and you, you don't have much uh, interaction with, uh, you know, orphans or people who are needy. Uh, and some of you actually, and one of the things I love about K2 is that that's not who we are completely. We are a very diverse uh, congregation. Some of you may have grown up as orphans or in needy in ghettos. I don't know. But, but I do know that today is the day that's nationally recognized. And what we're going to look at today is what does it mean for those of us here at K2 who call ourselves followers of Christ or followers of the word of God, what does it mean when it comes to helping the orphans? You know, the word, uh, the word orphan it occurs in the Bible. It's, it, there's the word orphan and fatherless. They're kind of used interchangeably, those two words. Uh, and it occurs both figuratively and literally, but, but some 50 times in the Bible. It's a, it's a big deal. It's not just this one-time one thing that's mentioned. Um, and, and it's important to note this, that every time that it's used, every single time that the word orphan or fatherless is used, it's used in a negative non-natural sense. In other words, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Every time it's referred to, it's referred to something that needs reparation or correction. 
The other thing that's really interesting about, about uh, the use of this word is that uh, every time it's used, it also is accompanied by one of two things, either a warning to people who take advantage of orphans and fatherless or, don't, or refu- refuse to care for them, so a warning, or an admonition for all of us to make sure that we're taking care of the orphans. Beyond this matter of orphan and the voiceless and the powerless, on this matter, in God's word, there's no wiggle room and no indifference. It's clear. And here's what I want you to hear me say today. It's not an option for us to decide if this is something we want to deal with. God's word says, if you call yourself a follower of me, deal with it. It's not an option. And so for me, as my third grade mindset tried to struggle through, that, ah, it doesn't affect me. I don't have to deal with it. I'm here to tell you that's not okay. You know, I started tracing through, like I said, some 50 times this word occurs in, in the Bible. And, and um, I could share all kinds of verses with you. And I'm only going to share a handful today because they're very similar in nature. But I want to share one that's found in Exodus chapter 22. Uh, that, that sort of represents uh, a good example of how this happens when, it, when you see, read about orphans in the Bible. And I'm going to pick up with verse 21, and it says this. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him. An alien, not space guy, but um, someone from out of, out of uh, their country. For you were aliens in Egypt because they were captives, they were slaves in Egypt. You were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. What is he saying here? You see, what, what he's saying is this, the warning, don't take advantage of them. Why? Because if you do, I will hear them. And then there will be a problem. How do I know that second part? Because in Deuteronomy, it says this, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. See, so God is defending the widows, and if he hears them cry out for his voice, he's, as the defender, he's going to act. I want to tell you a quick story. I'm going to bust through this really quickly because there's, man, I just, I could talk about this for a really long time. But many of you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah were these two cities that were very, very corrupt and spiritually and sexually bankrupt. uh, Just sort of an amoral culture. Uh, Anything and everything goes all day on all night. Um, And so... um, the story goes like this. Uh, God has this conversation with, with Abraham, who was the leader of Israel at the time. And he says, he says uh, I'm, I've, I've, heard, I've heard that those cities are bad. And I'm going to probably destroy them. So Abraham says, well, God, you wouldn't, you wouldn't destroy the cities if I could find 50 righteous people, would you? And God says, no, okay. And Abraham thinks, he says, well, how about 45? Okay. 40? Yep. 30? Yep. 20? Yep. Ten. Okay, done. So they decide that if, if, if God can find ten righteous people in these, uh, in, in these two cities, he won't destroy them. And so what he does is he sends these two angels into the town to go scout around. 
and they get there, and I'll, I'll leave tons of stuff out of the story, but just know this, that they get to the city, and they're taken into Lot's house, who was Abram, Abraham's nephew, and in the house, uh, it, it's pretty evident they're not going to find 10 people. As a matter of fact, Lot talks to his, his, his uh, sons and daughters, he's like, come on, you got to get out, and they don't want to leave. It's, it's just a miserably corrupt place. And, and we come across this verse, and it says this, the two men speaking of the angels. This is in Genesis 19. The two men said to Lot, do you have any other family here, sons, daughters, anybody in this city? Get them out of here. And now, this is in the morning that the Sodom was going to be destroyed. We're going to destroy this place. The outcries, check this out, the outcries of victims here to God are deafening. We've been sent to blast this place into oblivion. So remember me saying that if those who are oppressed cry out, what happens? God hears them. And in this place, in Sodom and Gomorrah, so many victims, as they say in this verse, so many people were crying out to be heard by God that the sound was deafening. It was overwhelming God's ears. Like you remember the scene in Bruce Almighty where he, all these voices are coming in, he can't hear them because there's too much? It's like that. Because there was so much victimization going on. And we often think that in this place, that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of its sexual promiscuity. And that is part of it. But as I read further in Ezekiel, I came across this really interesting verse that I want to share with you. Chapter 16, picking up in verse 49, it says this. The sin of your sister Sodom was this. She lived with her daughters in the lap of luxury, proud, gluttonous, and lazy. They ignored the oppressed and the poor. They put on airs and lived obscene lives. And you know what happened. I did away with them. See, not once he mentions obscene lifestyle, but he never mentions the sexual promiscuity. What he mentions specifically is their lack of care for the oppressed. And because of that, the city's destroyed. See, it's a big care for the orphans, for those of you who call yourselves followers of Christ is not an option. It's an essential. And in that city, they couldn't find 10 people, 10 people in sister cities that were committed to living that lifestyle. And as a result, they're blown to oblivion. It's a big deal to God. And it's not an option. But I want to take a step further because it's really difficult to talk about orphans without talking about adoption. And the, the image, this became so personally, man, it was just a, one of those light bulb spiritual moments for me when I started looking into God's word and, and uh, the language, the very language and imagery used about our very salvation is that of adoption. You've probably read it a bunch of times. I have too. But in Romans chapter eight, it says this. For you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to spear, or to, to spear, to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and we cry, Abba, Father. The New Living Translation says this, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children, and we call him Abba, Father. See, what happens when we are adopted into the kingdom of God, when we become children of God, we go from being fearful slaves to whatever it is 
to being his children. And we stop crying out for his help. We start crying to him as our father. It's really interesting. And it says, the language here says, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. We want to know what happens. Like I said, I was just in the Philippines. I didn't share this in the last message, but we have girls that are somewhere between the ages of 13 to 21, 22 years old that are taken and sold into sex slavery. Okay, that's a spirit of fear. That's not caring for orphans. And Amy, Amy King, sitting right down here, she's going to be up here in a minute. She was telling me that the sex slave trade brings in more money than Coke, which I understand. Coke, the drink. Uh, Coca-Cola, Walmart, and McDonald's combined. So the image of adoption for me, again, as an adoptive parent, so often we view adoption as a legal transaction. But the understanding of adoption to be called a son is actually quite opposite. It's a very personal interaction. I want to share a story that I read uh, in Christianity Today. as a cover story back in June, oh, I'm sorry, July this year. And the story is, is um, Russell D. Moore. He, he's an author and he writes for the magazine. He wrote this book, Adopted for Life. It's available today. It's a, um, I actually have not read it, so I can't really give it a great recommendation. Amy, Amy read it and she said it. She just gave me the thumbs up, so go ahead and buy it. Um, <laughs> anyway, the story, the story that he shares in Christianity Today is this. He, he was going to adopt two kids from a Soviet Union orphanage. And I guess the way you do it, uh, the, we adopted, but our adoptions were here domestically, and so we didn't have to do this. But when you adopt, you have to go over and you take, you, you do visits, and then you leave, and they do paperwork, and you go back and do more. And so he was on one of his trips with his wife, and he was uh, visiting, and he said the, the, the creepiest sound in the world hit him when he walked in the orphanage. And the sound was Silence. Because what happened is he walked into an orphanage filled with kids and he heard nothing. No cries. Just silence. And his wife was puzzled by that. And they realized, see, what happens is children learn. Right? You do this with your kids at night. You put them in bed and they cry. And they realize if you're not coming back, there's no point in crying. So they just eventually stop crying. And that's what happened in this orphanage. There were no sounds because no one was coming back for them. And they went and they visited with, with their two sons. They adopted two eventually. And they went and they visited. And as they walked in, they saw the, one of their kids. And they're bouncing up in their crib side. And they played with them. And then they had to leave that night. And they came back the next day. And they did this for a few days. And then after the third day, they actually had to leave the country. And more paperwork would be done. And it was at this moment that the adoption changed for him. Because what happened was they, they played with him. And it was time for them to leave. And he went and they hugged and they kissed. And they said, good, they said their goodbyes. And as they turned to walk out for the first time in that whole trip, their soon-to-be son cried out for his daddy. Now, you can say that adoption is a legal transaction, but the same was true of Su- when Susie and I adopted. I'll talk about that in just a minute, but signing the paperwork happened six months after we had Jude and Gideon in our possession. They were long 
our children before that. And the same thing for him. It didn't matter what paperwork work followed. The moment that his child cried for him, in the same way that we cry, Abba, Father, we became and they became his children. not a legal transaction. It's a personal transaction. We are never intended to be orphans. It was never God's plan. Interesting thing too is this. Once you're adopted, you know what you are? You're just someone's kid. For Jude and Gideon, our two kids, I'll I'll tell you this. And I'm going to tell you, uh, it's kind of weird. I'm going to tell you the story of our adoption. And I'm not telling you this to show what a great spiritual leader I am. uh, That's just obvious. So, but um, I I tell you this because I want to share actually something that I think is pretty important for for you to hear. And I walk a lot when I talk, don't I? Um... So Susie and I, when we were married, uh, we early on, very early in our relationship, realized, you know what? We both felt like we, we were supposed to adopt. I don't know why. I don't know how it got in there. We just both felt, you know what? We're supposed to adopt. And so what we started doing, and we were able, we've had, we have Natalie, my daughter, sitting right here, and Elijah's up, you know. We, we have had kids, you know. It wasn't that we couldn't have kids, but... We just felt we were supposed to adopt. And so what happened, um, we started going to these adoption um, agencies will hold these meetings and you go in and they just give you information. They say, if you want to take a next step, here's what you do. So we went to, we did this like, I don't know, four or five times, a bunch of times. We, we went and then what would happen is you get to this point, they say, okay, why don't you go to the office and we'll formalize this deal. And we'd go in and we'd start talking through them. And then we get to this point, every time this was the deal breaker, we get to this and, they, and they, they would say this. Okay, so the next step for you guys is uh, we're going to need $10,000 for you to put down to hold this adoption process. And, um, and then the rest will be due, you know, which is like that and one and a half times more on the back end uh, when, when, when the adoption's finalized. And so Susie and I would leave. Every time we would leave disheartened going, I, I don't get it. You know, God puts this on our heart, yet we have no means to make this happen. And again, this happened over and over and over. We're still in mission. We move out to Utah and we do it again. And the same thing happens. We get to the $10,000 point and it's like, okay, I guess we're not, it's not going to happen for us. But, but through talking to someone, we learned something really interesting about Utah, which is very different than most states in the country. And that is that you can adopt free of charge here in Utah through foster care. And so Susie and I began the process of going through, you have to go, you have to get licensed and be a foster parent and so on and so forth. And so she had to take 36 hours of foster care classes. I had to take 12. And I told the, you know, obviously it's because I'm a better parent that I didn't have to take as many. Um, they, they said it was because she was going to be a primary caregiver, whatever. And uh, <laughs> I mean, call it what you want. I see it. And uh, so we did these classes and we started the, the, the process of we're going to go ahead and we're going to foster. And it was so bizarre because as we, and I could talk about this for a long time as well, but as we began the process of moving into becoming foster parents, an agency called us and they said, we have someone who wants to sponsor your adoption. No cost. We have a child for you. And we adopted the first time and then 11 months later we adopted again. 
And I tell you, again, I don't want you to come up and go, hey, who was, who was uh, your daddy Warbucks? I'd love to get in on that action. I'm not telling you that for that reason. I'm telling you this because of this. What Susie and I believe God asked us to do outside of our realm of ability to make happen, we continue to pursue. And as a result, we fulfilled what we believe God called us to do. James one twenty seven, a verse that you can you can talk about religion all day long. You can define it however you want. James one twenty seven puts it pretty pretty much right to the point. Oh, that's me. It says this: religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this: to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So you want to know what religion is? That God counts, not what humans count taking care of the orphans and the widows. What I'd love to do right now, um, some of you guys know Amy King, and she uh, has been, I'd love to have her come forward here, and I'd love to have her share a little bit. I've shared one piece, and that's adoption. And quite frankly, adoption is a very small piece of the puzzle for the global orphan crisis. And I'd just love to uh, give her an opportunity to share some of her thoughts on this. And um, she, by the way, she... Amy's been here. She does a lot of our video editing. She's going to be leaving here in a little bit, which is a bummer. But um, when you hear the story, I think you'll feel less sad than happy. So would you guys welcome Amy? Man, there's so much to say in so little time. I know. I just, how much time do we have? 20 minutes. Okay. So you want me to share my story? Is that what you Sure, want? yeah. Why don't you share a little okay. bit of the background? Well, I... Um, I have always had, I always say always, for as long as I can remember, this passion for orphans, for adoption. My dad was an orphan, and then he was put into foster care and adopted. And then actually, I didn't mention this last service, but then he was killed in a car accident when I was 11. And so um, I experienced the remainder of my years um, growing up fatherless. And so, um, but I I never looked back on all those things and and went, because of those things, I'm going to do something about this. Um, It was just in me. It was just a passion that was really deep in me. And so I started doing research probably in 2000. I'd gone over to Brazil on a short-term mission trip, worked with orphans there, and it really ignited this fire to come back and go, okay, what could I do? So I started doing research, and as I started doing research, instead of finding out how many thousands of orphans there were, which I thought there's got to be thousands and thousands of them, I found out that there was millions and millions of them. And at that time, in early 2000, the number was 132 million. And I don't know about you, when you hear numbers like that, they're not motivating Hmm. to me. They just completely paralyze. I'm like, I'm one person, little old Amy living in Detroit, Michigan. You know, like, what? I can't do anything. What can I do? And so didn't do anything, um, but it never went away. And Russia was a, a country that was always really strongly in my heart. And so finally, I was like, I'm just going to Russia and found an organization to go with, went over there, and spent two weeks going to, from one orphanage to another. And it just completely ruined me. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to you know, an orphanage. It's an institution. And I remember going into these orphanages, and um, I, I spent most of my two weeks mad at God, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I would look around and go, okay, God, Scripture says that you're a father to the fatherless. 
but I don't see, I don't see this happening. It was almost like, okay, God, you're not doing your job. You know, this does not make sense to me. And I felt like I was standing in like the biggest example of injustice that I could ever exam, you know, um, see, you know, I'd go into this orphanage and there's 200 kids and they, are you kidding me? They don't have homes. I'm like, this is the kind of stuff that you see in movies. And I'm like, this is just completely unfair. And so that began this thing in me where I came back and just started, you know, like diarrhea of the mouth (laughs) (laughs) about it to anybody and everybody who would listen about, do you know that this is going on? And, you know, and then finding out, man, this is going on in our country too, in terms of the number of kids that are in foster care. And God just really called me to be a voice. Um, Proverbs 31 Eight, it says to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, and that's these these kids that I ran into. They have no voice, and I would I, I would stand with them, and I would go, "There's no reason that that's not me. Like that could have been me very easily. And if that had been me, how badly would I want somebody to be my voice? Um, and that just began in me this this passion. Um, God just really laid on my heart, Amy. Um, don't ever apologize for your passion for this because I think I would kind of temper it sometimes and go, okay, I know this is my thing. It doesn't have to be everybody's, you know, and God just would stop me. He's like, no, you're wrong, Amy. This, this is my thing. This is my passion. And I've just invited you into it. Um, and now I need you to tell as many people, um, that you can, that, um, they're my hope for the orphan on this earth. And so that's what I do. What I do with no apologies. Hey, share with us a little bit uh, how that transitioned, because I know you were, when we were talking, you were saying that um, the statistics can be sort of debilitating, but, but um, when yeah. you touch, when you live, you know, life on life, it, it sort of changes a picture for you. And I know you even specifically one person, I think you have yeah. a picture of. Yeah, well, last, last, last year, last service, um, I showed a picture of when I was in Ethiopia, but the actually per- picture I want to show is from Russia, um, because this is when... Um, that's Ethiopia there. Uh, can you go to the one where it's me and there's a little boy? Maybe not. Maybe not. Um, let me just share this really quick. Um, it's this quote that I ran across um, from this book called Radical. And if you want your life completely ruined, I suggest picking up this book. If you don't, run for your life from this book because um, it's amazing. But the quote, there's a quote in there. It says, um, orphans are easier to ignore before you know their names. They're easier to ignore before you see their faces and it's easier to pretend that they're not real before you hold them in your arms. But once you do, everything changes. And what happened when I went to Russia is that names and faces meant something to me. This woman, oh, okay, so, so that's Russia and that's a little boy named Sergei who God just totally gave me, said this is the little boy you're gonna, you're gonna love and so I love him from afar. Um, and pray for him. And this woman, her name is Almaz, and um, I met her in Ethiopia last year. She was making coffee for us, and her little girl, Hope, she's HIV positive, and um, her husband left when he found out. And um, the interesting thing about Almaz is she represents millions and millions and millions and millions of women who go to sleep every night wondering who will take care of my children when I'm gone. Um, it's hard for us, I think, to think about that question because it's so far from our reality. Like, if something happened to us, we know we have friends or family that would take care of our kids. We write it into our wills, you know, this is who's going to take my, care of my kids. But if you could remove yourself from your typical world and go, what would it be like if I knew something was going to happen to me and I had no idea what was going to happen to my kids? 
Um, and as the body of Christ, we're the answer. And that's the question. Do we have an answer? Do we, can we say, I'm going to take care of your child? Um, and so, yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about this. I know um, you said that the numbers can be, uh, you know, demotivating. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, this is some pretty, pretty big numbers. And talk, talk to me about that. Yeah, so you that. see numbers fluctuate. Like when I started researching, it was 132. You see numbers all the time because it's constantly changing. Um, the latest number, which came out in 2009, is 163 million kids. Um, and to clarify kind of what that looks like overall, that's um, kids who have lost one or both parents. So in a lot of those cases, um, so 18.3 of those kids have actually lost both parents. So majority of these kids that we're classifying as orphans, they're maybe living in a single family household, maybe the father is absent, or maybe they have both parents, but they've been taken out of the home and they're in foster mm-hmm. care. Um, yeah, like in the U.S., there's, there's any, one, any one time there's about a half a million kids coming in and out of foster care. And um, so you hear numbers like that, and again, it's like completely paralyzing. But I ran across this statistic that has just like haunted me um, that I wanted to share. And I think it's, it's motivating, um, but I think it also really speaks to the church and our role. Um, so there's around 127 kids in the United States whose parental rights have com- been completely severed, so they're available for adoption. Um, there's about 348,000 evangelical churches in the U.S. So if you do the math, that means if one family from every three churches in the U.S. adopted a child in foster care, we would have no kids in the United States waiting for a home. Hmm. And I don't know what that does to you, but that just like... It makes me crazy, <laughs> you know, whenever I hear that. And it makes me think, what are we doing as the church with our time and our money and our resources that we can't solve this problem? Um, that's one of my questions. And the other question I think is really interesting is, in, and I'm talking, you know, to believers, people who profess to, to follow Jesus, that everything that we do is in front of a watching world. And we know that, of course, when bad things happen or, you know, something goes wrong or whatever. You just, you see, you know, the church or somebody trashed in the news or whatever, and it's all about what we're against or whatever. And I thought, what if a watching world saw the church clean out, you know, wipe out all these kids who are waiting for families in foster care? What would the world do, you know, if, if that's what they saw? And that's just such a an amazing opportunity. There's kids you're going to see out in the hall. There's about 22 kids out there through an organization called the Adoption Exchange, and they're all legally available for adoption. Like you said, it's it's completely free. And again, if you're a parent, or you don't even have to be a parent, if you if there's a child in your life that you love, a niece, a nephew, a friend, or whatever, when you go out there, like imagine if that was your child hanging on the wall that needed a home. Um, in my prayer, I, I prayed last night and even driving in. I'm like, God, I'm just praying that all 22 of those kids find homes this weekend through, through families at K2. Hey, share, so you shared a couple stories, one in oh, yeah. good old Possum Trot, mm-hmm. Texas, and one in somewhere in Florida. Yeah. Uh, share, share those. Yeah, this is a great story. So um, this little town in Possum Trot, Texas, I mean, how, like, how podunk does that sound? <laughs> you know, it's, um, I think, isn't Mike Seifert from Mike there? Mike Seifert's from yeah. Possum Trot. Um, but it's so, it's so little that most of the time you, it's not even on a map. Jed Clampett's from there, too. <laughs> Carry on. Okay. 
Um, so this little church, there's maybe like a hundred families in the church and the pastor and his wife decided they were, they they felt led to adopt a couple kids out of foster care. So they did that and it kind of just ignited this thing in their church that wasn't a plan. It just happened. And so they wrote this awesome book, which I highly recommend. It's called small town, big miracle. And, um, 50 families from this little church have fostered 130 kids. They've adopted and out of those, they've adopted 72 of them. And the average income of a family that adopted was $19,000. So when I hear, you know, people, I, the financial thing is a huge thing for people who are wanting to engage in the adoption process. But I always tell people, God doesn't ask you if you can afford to adopt. Most of the people I know with, I, I know a lot of adoptive families. And with the exception of a couple, most of them didn't even have two pennies to rub together. Um, but it's what God called them to do. And so I hear stories like that. So I'm like, do not tell me that you cannot afford to adopt (laughs) when I hear a story like that. So, and then another story just of how we can really be involved locally with foster care. Cause I think a lot of people, you see pictures of Africa and stuff and God calls people to do that. Um, but a lot of people, you're not in a situation where you can go do that. So what can I do locally? Um, with foster care. And this, this church in Florida, they decided we want to help in some way. And so they went to their local foster care association and they said, we don't know what we can do, but we're from such and such church and we want to help. And the guy was just like dumbfounded. And he looked at him and he was like, that's, he's like, that's awesome. And his response was, I didn't even know that the church cared. Mm. And that's where you hear stuff like that. And again, you go, okay, what are we doing? with our time and our resources and what God has given us that we can't welcome a child, um, whether it's for two weeks or two months or forever, um, into our home. Right now in Utah, there's about 2,200 kids in foster care. About 475 of those kids in our own state are waiting for homes that um, they may or may not, they may, about 20. 20,000 kids age out every year of the foster care system, never having been either reunited with their family or finding an adoptive family. Hmm. So, Well, talk about this. Um, so I know that you shared a statistic with me that some, like, like 99% of the people, the orphans, are not going to be adopted yeah. statistically. And so yeah. adoption is one, one part of the solution, but it seems like a small piece of it. Um, so beyond adoption, what... what where does that leave us? Yeah, something like 98% of these kids will not be adopted. And a lot of it is because they're not legally available for adoption. Parents haven't severed parental rights or what have you. And so the question is, you know, Mike really set the stage of going, okay, this isn't a question if you're a follower of Jesus of whether I'm supposed to be a part of this or not. It's, you know, it's like not an option. So the question that you have to take, I believe, before God is that what is my role in this? And just backtracking a little bit before leaving the whole adoption thing too is, is I feel like I, I have no problem though, though not everybody is called to adopt and we're all called to care, but we're all called to care for our friends. At the same time, I really feel strongly that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should actually pray about adopting. And I'll say that boldly, you know, with no, um, with no apologies, that it's something that you should take before God, I think, and just ask him if it's something that he has for you. And if not, then there's a million ways that you can be involved. involved. And um, um, just really quickly, I want to go through them. Um, some ways 
um, being, you know, we've talked a lot about foster care. So you can be a foster care with, with a parent with no intent on actually adopting, but there are kids that are going to, like I said, going to come through. They're going to be removed from their home for a couple months, a couple years, or whatever. I recently heard a story, and it just reflected the need of, to have really good foster families, and that was that this guy had, they had adopted their little girl out of foster care at age 10, and in the previous 10 years, she had been in three different foster homes, and she had been abused in all three. And so that just really um, speaks to the need um, for just amazing foster families. Um, You can do respite care for a foster family, which means, you know, people who are fostering kids, they can't just leave these kids if they want to go out on date night or go away for the weekend and get that really much needed break that they need. They can't just leave them with anybody. Um, you can get trained as a respite care provider. It's, I don't think it's very many hours, um, but you just need some training so that you can provide that for a family. Um, um, mentor kids, there's a great program out there, Utah Youth Mentoring Project. So kids mentor, kids age out of the foster care system, and they still need somebody. And First Presbyterian Church here in Salt Lake started an awesome program where they will match you up with a child who has aged out. Amazing story I heard from that is one kid had never received a birthday card in his entire life until he got a foster or until he got a, a mentor family. I'm like, how hard is that to do? You know, how hard is it? to have a kid over once a week for dinner. They're eating dinner anyways, you know, and, and to invite them into being a part of your life. Um, I didn't talk about this last, um, I didn't get a chance to talk about this last service, but Royal Family Kids Camps, this awesome, awesome program. I'm so excited. Um, they do camp for one week for kids who are in foster care. So you can volunteer your time um, and do that. And there's a couple churches here that are already doing it, and so you can join up with them. Or I thought they can only, they do like 30 kids at a time because um, they want to have like one adult per every two children mm-hmm. so that there's a lot of you know, great interaction and they need about 30 people. So I'm like, we could find 30 people here at K2. You know, if that's something that you would want to go, hey, I could totally head that up and provide just an awesome experience for those kids who just are coming from horrific, um, just really hard circumstances. Um, wrap around adoptive families. There's this great little book called that, Wrapping Around Adoptive Families out there, a buck. Just ways to support adoptive families. Um, you know, I, I think adoptive families are, I think of them as they're out on the front lines and they're in the battle because they're, they're bringing these kids in. And if you think about somebody out in war and in battle, and for every person who's out in the front, there's like six people back at camp, you know, getting stuff ready and behind the scenes. And you can be one of those people. Um, it's not that hard. Um, but it does take a little bit of initiative and time and go, okay, looking around, how can I help? Um, something really, really easy, and you don't have to sign up and be a part of an organization to do it, uh, that I just feel really strongly about is look around for fatherless children. Hmm. They're living right next door to you. Your kids are going to school with them. You know, so many different scenarios. Um, There's a a great book, and it's for sale out there. It's called Fatherless Generation. It's about all these kids who are growing up without a father. And a quote in there just says, fatherless fatherlessness creates an an appetite in the soul that demands fulfillment. And, you know, I I think in America or just in society, we think, oh, dads are the accessory parent. And it's just so not true. And so the great thing, too, about that is you don't have to be a father to father. 
um, you can be a young single guy in college or whatever and you know join up with big brothers and big sisters and, and be that role model um, and then just I didn't mention this last time but just pr- and pray you know I, I I often think that the little boy that um, I'm hooked up with in Russia I know that I'm the only one in the whole entire world that's praying for him hmm. and so you even look at the the kids that are out on that wall, you know, if the, if the least thing that you could do today is look at a face and remember a name and pray for that child. Um, it, because like I said, you may be the only person in the world um, that's praying for that kid. And that's huge. So one, one last question for you, Amy. I, I, yeah. told, uh, I told everyone you're going to be leaving here. And I, uh, another quote uh, from Matt Carter. Now, Matt Carter is the pastor at Austin Stone, the church you're going to be uh, heading out to. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a minute. And I just got to read this quote. Uh, it says this, I'm convinced that the global orphan crisis is one of the major barriers to us seeing the Great Commission fulfilled in our lifetime. Why? Because there are millions of kids growing up without a father, and it produces in them the question, does my heavenly Father love me? Now you're going to be heading out to Austin, and I'd love yes. to for you to share a little bit what's going on with that. Yeah, um, I've just over the past couple of years felt called to like this is what I want to do with my life. Like I just want to give my life over to being a voice for the orphan, to being to really living out Proverbs thirty-one eight. And um, so I was kind of looking at other organizations that I would probably have to move out to because I didn't really. What I wanted to do, I wasn't seeing really happening here, even though there's lots of great organizations. And last year, I just felt like God asked me to stay here um, and, and to start something. And it was actually, the interesting thing was, was, I was getting ready to leave for Ethiopia. It was a week before Orphan Sunday. And I was I was on Facebook, and I noticed somebody posted with it from another organization um, who helps with Orphan the National Orphan Sunday. They said, we're so excited about Orphan Sunday this weekend. We have... Churches or events planned in every state of the U.S. except for the state of Utah, and I just rent. I just that like sealed the nail in the coffin of okay, I'm supposed to do this because I still, you know, I still feel like one little person who can't really do a whole lot, you know, and kind of like the most, you know, like okay, send somebody else, you know, I'm not really eloquent in speech <laughs> and all those types of things, but I'm like, but good. Was, <laughs> yeah, I'm getting better, yeah. but um, just like. Okay, I think I'm supposed to do something. So I felt like I had the passion and the vision, but I didn't necessarily feel like I had the training of the, the vision of um, possibly hooking up all the churches in the valley to form an alliance to do things together, both locally and abroad. So I found this, God brought this church to me, this attention, this church to my attention um, in Austin. And they're, right now, they're part of a network of 20 churches in the area who are doing exactly what I want to do. And they've invited me to come down and spend a year, possibly a year and a half with them, just drinking from the fire hose. I keep pe- telling people, I'm like, I'm going to Disneyland. <laughs> You're like, this is like Disneyland to me. And I'm like, and I'm riding every ride, <laughs> you know, just experience as much as I can. And then God willing, you know, God has a funny way sometimes about changing our plans. So I, I'm open to, you know, other plans, but my hope is that he'll bring me back here and um, I can help uh, launch and recreate what they're doing in the city of Salt Lake. Hmm. Well, uh, so I know you're not going to probably say this, but I'd love for you to share how can people help you in this process? Um, biggest way, I, I, if you feel led to pray for me, um, I feel like I'm going out on the front lines. Um, I was reminded even just getting ready for this last night how much the enemy hates all this. He hates the fact that we care for orphans because he, they're the easiest prey 
really for him. And so um, just just for prayer, for covering of what I'm about to go do. And, and, um, and then, but then also um, financially, it's one of those things where you raise your support, monthly support, kind of like if you're familiar with like Campus Crusade or something like that, where you, people support you on a monthly basis or one-time gifts. And I'm still in the process of doing that whole thing. I'm, I'm getting there, but I'm not completely there. So if that's something that God would lay on your heart, you can um, come see me. And, uh, Just be down here after the service. Yeah, I'll be want. down there or out in the lobby. or. Cool. So, yeah. Well, I'd love to ask you guys to join as we pray for Amy here. And um, So would you just bow your heads and, and join your hearts with ours as we pray? Father, we are um, humbled and awed, um, sometimes overwhelmed and oddly encouraged. Um, with this opportunity and responsibility to care for the orphans. And specifically, I pray uh, for Amy um, as she's um, about ready to embark on a new adventure uh, in following you. And I just um, pray for your hand upon her, your guidance for her, um, and, and just your leadership in her life. I pray that she would have a rippling effect that would go beyond this valley through the whole country, through, through the whole world, and that, that we could just one person by being responsible and by, by um, following what they believe you're calling them to do could make a huge impact um, exponentially far beyond what our personal capabilities would ever uh, afford us. And uh, again, uh, my selfish prayer would be for you to bring her back to this place, this community where, we, where she's been part of for so long. But more than that, Lord, I pray for your will to be done in her life and for you to work your will through her into the lives of others. Thank you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to, just as we, we're getting, moving to the end of this service here, and I just want to, um, we're going to do a closing song this morning, and, and um, as the greeters, I'm going to invite the greeters to come forward. We're going to take our offering, and we always just like to tell you guys, you know, hey, if this is not a time for you to feel pressured into giving. That's not what this is about. But it is an opportunity for you if you feel blessed and you feel like God has given to you. Uh, this is your opportunity to uh, financially give back and support K2 personally. And um, we're going to do this song, though, as we close out the morning. Um, and, and as you may have received an email asking for you guys to send your pictures of you involved with orphans and people around the world, um, you may see yourself and others in this video, and you can see what effect we can have when we live life on life and we impact those around us by actually stepping out of our comfort zone and getting to the life of others. So I'd love for you to just watch this and listen to this.